Hello and welcome to the second series of Help, I'm in my 20s, a podcast dedicated to career development, stories and inspiration hosted by me, Georgie Hobart-Smith. Today's guest is Iona Bain, author, financial journalist, blogger, public speaker and so much more. I came across Iona when my aunt sent me her second book, Own It, which is a guide to investing for millennials. Is written incredibly clearly and breaks down some huge topics into digestible chapters. I was so happy when Iona said she'd be keen to be part of Help in My Twenties and it was awesome to speak with her as well. This episode is full of surprises including Iona's career change in her early twenties from something you might not expect which I really hope you'll enjoy listening to. So let's get started. Hi Iona, thank you so much for being on Help I'm in My Twenties. How are you? Yes, I'm good. Thank you, Georgie. Great. And I think last week was the budget, so quite an intense week for you. Yeah, very intense. So I was on Morning Live on BBC One. um, And generally speaking, you just have to be on call uh, to provide analysis. But it's quite an overwhelming uh, event as well, because so much is announced um, that actually it takes quite a while for the dust to settle and for for you to gain that clarity about what will actually come out of the budget. Um, So in a way, I've kind of given up on trying to uh, offer some perfect snapshot analysis of it the day after, because I just don't think that's possible. Mm, Yeah, I think it probably sounds like it's first impressions and then you wait and see until you've got into the detail as well. Indeed, yeah. Okay, well, I mean, I have so many questions about what you do and how you got there, but it'd be great if you could just give a quick overview of your career to date and how you got into where you are now and I know you did something different before so how that journey happens. Sure well I have had an unconventional route into my current career. I started out as a musician so when I was um, a child and a young person I trained as a classical musician. I went to an excellent state-funded music school in Edinburgh, which is quite unusual. You don't really have these schools in England, Mm. Uh, but in Scotland you have a few. And I was very fortunate to get a a very good quality state-funded music education um, at a school called the City of Edinburgh Music School. And so really throughout my school days, I thought I was going to grow up and be a musician or working in music in one way or another. Um, I'm a very creative person. I mean, I know everyone likes to think that they're a creative person, but that is definitely how my brain is wired. Mm. I've never been particularly strong at maths. Um, I have got better as time's gone on, uh, but that was not my strong suit when I was at school. Um, I was not particularly interested in science um, and I never really thought about money. Uh, (laughs) My dad was a business journalist, uh, but he never talked that much about what he did for a living with us as we were growing up. And my mum and dad very much encouraged um, my brother and I to pursue our own uh, interests um, and to uh, yeah find our own way in the world and I went to university to study music and then I became more and more interested in being a pop musician so I moved away from classical music and started writing my own songs uh, and playing in bands Um, and I spent a few years doing that in Glasgow as well as being a music journalist um, and had a really good time. It was it was a very character forming experience <laughs> because being a musician out there in the big bad world is not easy. Music industry is a tough place. Um, you know, people can be incredibly talented and work really hard and and not get that far. It can feel like quite an unfair industry at times. Mm. Uh, but just generally trying to make a living as a musician um, is is has never been easy. And I'm still in touch with the the musical world. Um, my brother's a musician um, and uh, I have endless respect for what they do uh, because uh, to stay motivated and creative in some very tough circumstances, particularly what we've seen with COVID over the past year, which has just been absolutely devastating for the musical community. Um, they, they, really, they really inspire me to, to, to be uh, very uh, positive and constructive in, in my own life. Anyway, but I decided that actually music wasn't really for me as a career um, and that my strengths lay elsewhere. And and throughout school, I'd always been good at public performing and public speaking and writing. And um, I actually became much more interested in money as I realised how little I had of it. 
uh, and that way, um, you know, I wanted to learn more. And so my dad said to me, well, why don't you start a blog about personal finance? And at first I, I said to him, why would I do that? No one's going to want to read a blog by me because I don't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I couldn't really see the point of it. You know, at that time, blogs were not the kind of powerhouse that they are today. They were quite underground mm-hmm. and seen as the preserve of people doing it in their bedrooms in quite an amateur way, um, really just a hobby. Um, and so I didn't feel like it would necessarily have much value for me. But actually, at that time, I'd sort of hit rock bottom. I'd moved back home with my parents. I wasn't earning any money. And, you know, my self-esteem was shot to pieces, you know. And I actually think in those situations, that's the best time to start something completely new, to really challenge yourself and go out on a limb because you've got nothing to lose. So, so that's what I did. I, I just thought, well, you know, what else am I going to do right now? I may as well start this and see where it takes me. Mm. And it was definitely one of the best decisions I ever made because even though for the first few years, it did feel like I was, you know, uh, I, it didn't feel like I was gaining that much of a following. Um, it, it did build up traction over time. And then uh, I think 2016 was a real turning point for me because I'd started doing a lot more work in the financial media, um, but actually then I was getting a lot more interest in the blog itself. I was being asked to go on TV and radio. I was um, asked to write my first book. Uh, and it felt like there was a turning point there where I could carry on doing quite a conventional journalistic career, or I could really back myself and decide to pursue the blog and pursue um, you know, my current career full-time, go freelance and, and, and just go for it. And so that's what I decided. And I think on balance, it was the right decision to make. Um, and uh, I've been freelancing now for six years um, and I haven't really looked back. And so today I do lots of things. Um, I've kind of evolved. I don't just write the Young Money blog and I try not to be pigeonholed as a blogger or an influencer because, you know, as much as I think blogging and influencers have helped to open up the world of money, I think that they can come with can come with problems um and I think what I've always prided prided myself on is that I've also trained up as a journalist so I've done various jobs in the financial media in fact I've done pretty much every job you can think of in the financial media whether it's radio production reporting for a trade newspaper writing for a national newspaper um you know you name it I've done it um and I think that's really helped uh, build my journalistic skills and so I've, I've definitely seen myself as as a journalist and a writer first and foremost it just so happens that I use different channels and media to get my messages out there I'm not just relying on you know traditional print media I, I see a lot of value in online and broadcast media too to really get that message out to uh, to the public and to a section of society that maybe wasn't reached before by traditional personal finance media. So yeah, that's that's my career in a nutshell. Oh, it's so interesting and definitely so varied. And I mean, I was listening to Radio One the other day, and I think you came on for an interview, and I was like, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> I forgot to mention that. So I am really proud to be um, the. Uh, money hacker in residence at Radio One. So um, every so often I go on their life hack show um, and we do a money clinic for people. And it's something I love to do because it really challenges me to think about money and, and how to uh, communicate this mm. whole area in a, in a way that young people would find accessible. So yeah, that's one of the jobs that I'm, I'm, I'm most proud of. And I also write a weekly column for the I newspaper. Um, I started doing that earlier this year. Um, and that's been a dream come true, actually. I've always wanted to write a column. Um, and I was really lucky to be uh, approached by a former colleague who's now my editor, Sarah Davidson, who's absolutely brilliant. And she, um, she brought me on board earlier this year. Um, and that's another piece of work that I do every week that I'm incredibly proud of. I think that's great. And it's so varied. I mean, I'm sitting here right with your book, Own It, which is how I came across to you as my aunt sent me this. And it's all about kind of investing to a better future. But in general, I think, I mean, I don't know if it's just my age. I'm in my late 20s. Well, I'm actually nearly 30. But there seems to be such an, I guess, people are a lot more interested in personal finance. Do you feel like over the last, I guess, 10 years from when you started your book that that interest in that personal finance side has really increased definitely when I first started um, people 
thought it was very strange that I would want to blog about personal finance mm. and I was very often told young people don't care about money they find it dry and boring uh, and too complicated so it's a lost cause mm. uh, and it was really frustrating trying to get any editors and producers interested in this subject um, in the early days of my career because they took that attitude for the most part. There were a few exceptions. Some people did understand that actually, even if their uh, readers and, and uh, listeners and viewers were older, generally speaking, they cared much more about their children and grandchildren than themselves. And they wanted advice or information that they could pass on to that next generation mm. that came from a young perspective. Um, but you know that was that was the exception rather than the rule. But that has definitely changed in recent years. Um, and so now, if I tell people what I do for a living, uh, they are very quick to pick my brains, especially when I tell them that I've just written this book all about mm -hmm. investing. Uh, and I have to tell them, actually, I'm not a certified financial advisor. <laughs> you know, I can't actually give you advice. Um, but I think that overall, that's a good thing. It does come with risks and, and problems. I think that um, today, you know, you can go online and, and find out all kinds of information about money that and, and that information just wasn't available mm. um, in previous years. I, I think actually even just in the past five years, there's been that incredible shift uh, towards this more information rich online media um, and lots of influencers, you know, setting up shop and really, um, you know, becoming much more prominent. Uh, but there is a danger there that anybody can set themselves up in that way and start offering advice and maybe not giving people the full picture or maybe offering information that can be quite misleading. So I think um, journalism and, and, and really fact-based um, independent journalism has never been more important. Um, and I'm hopeful that, you know, maybe we will move away from the kind of wild west that we're seeing online at the moment and people will start to be more discerning and and really figure out whether or not the information they're reading is is entirely trustworthy or not i'm mm. hopeful that that will happen i hope so too i mean i generally i've been going through the process to get a mortgage and go through that entire process and it, i find it quite overwhelming even in that small mm. section of well I don't know how small it is but small section of finance trying to find the information that's relevant to you that's communicated in a way that's actually helpful um, and potentially more interesting as well is uh, sometimes it's quite hard so I guess that mm. must be one of the aims of what your blog is is to make communicate it in a simple way where you have all the information but it's not too much yeah, and it's a really hard balance to strike because you don't want to oversimplify and everybody's situation is different um, and the financial landscape is changing all the time. So um, information can be out of date within a matter of months. Mm -hmm. So that makes life quite complicated and difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and um, yeah, I also think that we maybe focus too much on products and not enough on people's mentalities. And I've always been really keen to explore the way we think and feel about money, because ultimately all our decisions flow from our state of mind around money. And people kind of end up addressing the, the symptoms of the problem rather than the underlying problem. Um, so, yeah, I think good financial journalism should be a balance between giving you the practical information that will help you navigate a tricky process like getting your first mortgage but then also exploring the underlying um, psychology of money and helping you understand, you know, why you think about money in the way that you do, because there's so much about money that is intensely political. It can be related to how we feel on a spiritual level about, about the world and, and, and our place in it. Uh, and these are fascinating questions that we all have to try and um, wrestle with as we go throughout our life. And we can't shy away from them. We can't just pretend that, you know, quote unquote, being good with money, which is not a phrase I really like to use, but it's something that lots of people think, oh, well, being good with money is just about understanding how a mortgage works. But in my opinion, it's not about that. It's about the fact that we have a relationship with money that changes throughout our lifetime. How do we maintain a healthy relationship with money? That's, that's, what, that's what I see my, my job as doing, you know, trying to help people understand that question better. Yeah, I think I wrote down in my notes, one of the things that I 
um, kind of really stuck with me was thinking about saving as self-care and yes. that mentality behind it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sometimes just reframing these things that it, and, and putting a different spin on it can, can be what helps unlock the, the more positive habit for people because ultimately so much of personal finance is about common sense. We all know that we should be spending in a more mindful way. We know we should be saving more. We should be trying to invest. We should be thinking about the long term. We, we know all this, so why don't we do it? And I think it's partly because of our actual socioeconomic situation. And, and very often that can only be addressed at a political level. And, and often it's because of people's own mentality. And sometimes it be, can be because people have got an underlying mental health or, or neurodivergent issue that, that they need to address. Uh, and then once that gets diagnosed, everything clicks into place. Uh, and I think we've only just started really talking about that in the last few years. You never heard mental health and money being brought up in the same sentence, you know, mm. even five or six years ago. Uh, but nowadays it's it's much more on the radar, which is a very good thing. Definitely. And I guess um, probably like a self-fulfilling circle. If you're in a bad state of mind, maybe the finances might take a turn for the worse, which puts you in a worse state of mind. So that downward spiral and conversely yeah. the upward spiral when it's the other way around. Absolutely. Mm. So going all the way back to when you were a musician, which actually I guess wasn't too long ago. Um, but one of the things that you said that really sort of struck a chord was, um, I think resilience has just really shone through in terms of it being a very tough industry. Mm. And it sounds like maybe you have had to do that when you're trying to carve your niche into the financial journalism world. Do you think that that's probably the main thing that you've carried over into your new career or are there other things that sort of shine brighter? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, there are lots of things actually that I've carried over from my musical past into what I do today. Mm. And there's a surprising amount of overlap. Um, I mean, when I when I was at school, we used to have to do these things called twilight recitals, which is what well, it's a ridiculous name for basically a, a concert that we had to do at about four o'clock every Wednesday. Uh, and and each term, you know, we had to do X number of twilight recital performances. Okay. And not only did we have to play a piece in in quite a small room in front of all our peers and parents and teachers, which is quite a daunting yeah. environment. <laughs> we also had to give a little speech about the piece beforehand. Um, and actually, it was doing that that made me realise that I was quite comfortable getting up and talking in front of people, as well as performing. I, I mean, I did get nerves, definitely. Um, and actually, I think ultimately that's one reason why I didn't become a professional musician, because there is you have to be absolutely exact in how you play a piece of classical music. Mm. Um, you know, there's no room for <laughs> improvisation. You just have to learn it and execute it perfectly. Uh, and people who can do that are, you know, incredible. I realised I wasn't one of them. Um, and it was one reason why I love pop music in a way, because it gave me a little bit more room to be mm. uh, improvisational and, and creative in, in the moment. Uh, and in a way, what I do today is quite improvisational and creative. I'm not saying when I go and give a speech or go on the radio or go on TV that it's all improvised. Obviously, I do a lot of prep, but... Um, you know there's only so much prep that you can do and then you have to just be confident that you'll be able to deliver in the moment and that you'll be firing on all cylinders and just able to it's like it's like going into it's going into a special zone where you can really think through what you're going to say and you can find the words and you can just deliver that in the moment when it's needed I find that quite exhilarating and and scary as well but that was something I learned to do uh, from my musical training and, and just getting up in front of people and performing. I think if you can do that as a classical musician, that's the, the hardest form of public performance I could think of, apart from maybe, you know, uh, being in the World Cup final. Uh, but <laughs> being a classical musician, I think, is the hardest form of public performance you can do. So, so once you've, you've spent a lot of time doing that growing up, everything else seems not easy, but easier by comparison. So um, yeah, there's that, there's that that I've carried over, but it's really interesting what you say about the resilience as well. I think as a musician, you become quite comfortable with rejection. Um, you understand that it's not personal, um, that 
sometimes it can be you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong sound mm. um and uh yeah you just you just do become quite comfortable in you have to become quite comfortable in your skin um and you have to be quite accepting of yourself as a musician in order to get on in that world and that was something I definitely took with me into my current career because when I first started out with the blog I never thought it would become a full-time career I mean I never dreamed of that I just thought it might help me get jobs in financial media it'll help me learn about money and then I'll be able to pass on what I know to other people and that's that's a helpful public service but I didn't think oh I'll be able to base a whole career off it that was just not (laughs) that was I was never in my mind when I started Um, but then as I was getting these more conventional jobs in in the financial media um, and some some of the jobs, early jobs that I had, I mean, the, the very first one I had, um, it, it was awful. I, I was plunged into this workplace where um, it was just such a toxic culture. There was sexual harassment, sexual bullying, um, you know, presenteeism, you name it. It was all there in the mix. It was so toxic and unhealthy and I had to leave after seven months and I felt absolutely terrible about the whole experience and blame myself for it. Mm. And then obviously me too happened and I realized, hang on, I... I wasn't in the wrong there that was a totally unacceptable workplace and I was just very unlucky that it happened to be my first experience age 22 being in London for the first time Um, and yeah I I had to work through that but I did have a kind of underlying self-esteem and resilience to be able to identify that that wasn't healthy and to leave because I know other people didn't leave that company until it collapsed a year later and I think to myself well at least I had the the strength to walk away early when I knew it would be really painful but I knew it'd be the right thing for me to do so little little things like that I think you know were ingrained in me in my musical training because it is tough it is competitive and you do have to grow quite a thick skin. Mm. Gosh, I'm sorry you had to go through that it sounds horrendous. And it was, but you know, I've, I've I've worked through it now, and and that's one reason why I think Me Too was in in many ways an absolute godsend for young women because it enabled them to look back on their early experiences and go, okay, that that wasn't right, and um, yeah, I, I I don't have to carry around any shame about that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so so yeah, it was a, it was very positive when Me Too happened for that reason. That's good, and I think one thing you mentioned about the kind of having your your mindset in that really clear space where you can then answer questions which maybe you might not have been able to prepare for in a way that you you feel happy with later I find Mm. sometimes when I'm so presenting at work potentially I have days which where I'm clearer and more focused than other days so do you consciously prepare your mind for those interviews or is it just something that comes naturally now as soon as I find out that I'm going to do an interview it hangs over me both in a good and bad way so um I I become conscious that it's it's ahead of me in a way that maybe I I don't feel that way when I have public speaking engagement or or a journalistic assignment uh because um there is something about live tv and radio where it's so much about you being absolutely focused in the moment ready Mm. to deliver uh, and you do have to train yourself and 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 be mentally prepared for that. In in hopefully you get a certain amount of notice. But mm. if I have an interview like the next morning, I never sleep that well because yeah. I think there's there's a part of my brain that's quite primal and and sees that as as something that I've got to be absolutely ready for and and primed to do. And and I can't go to sleep because that means I'll I'll you know I'll I'll I won't be in the right state of mind it's it, it's bizarre and it's irrational but I think there's something about your your brain and how it reacts to a, a situation like that that means you're a bit on edge basically mm. um so I think that's what happens is I get this sort of um yeah real um flood of adrenaline and then even if I haven't had a good sleep which is usually the case I can perform because that adrenaline is what carries me through mm. uh, and then afterwards you slump and and actually that is very similar to what it used to be like when I was a musician you, you'd be pumped up full of adrenaline to do something you'd go and do it and then afterwards you'd, you'd slump because there would be that anticlimax and and your adrenal glands would be depleted um and so it it doesn't ever become easy but it gets easier to deal with that and you just realize that's that's part of the job but again I'm just so in awe of tv presenters and radio presenters 
who can do that, you know, day in, day out, week in, week out. And I mean, obviously for a lot of them, that it must get so much easier with practice and experience. But I still think there's there is something um, a little bit terrifying about doing that kind of um, opportunity that and, and that little edge must never go away. Mm, yeah. And maybe sometimes that's good as well, I think, in just kind of almost making it a little bit more alert and potentially having that more rapid response when it's needed but sometimes yeah absolutely yeah and also because you have to perform in those situations is that sounds terrible because you know you want to be authentic you want to be yourself but you know the way the way I would speak to to you know an interviewer on morning live or on a radio program is not the way that I would speak to my my friends or my family or you know in any normal situation it's heightened Um, And therefore, yeah, that adrenaline just helps you get to that kind of sparky place where you know what to say and you know just how to say it. But there are days when you just it just doesn't happen. And when that I've learned not to beat myself up because, um, you know, there can be lots of reasons. And sometimes the reasons might not be entirely in your control. If you're in a situation where the interviewer it takes the mistaken belief that that they know more about the subject than you do mm. or they come in with an agenda that's not helpful or they ask you really silly questions uh and or they put you know you can see sometimes in an interviewer's eyes when they're kind of wanting you to wrap up uh, and they, and it really comes across to you and you lose your train of thought and it distracts you and you understand why they're doing it because they have time pressure um, and they maybe have a producer speaking to them in their ear, but they maybe they don't realize that it comes across to you like you're, you know, uh, being kind of hurried along and, and that that can be quite off-putting and distracting. Um, so, yeah, you have to accept that lots of things will not be within your control. And I don't generally watch myself after I do TV and radio because I think, well, what's, what's gone is gone. Uh, I can't do anything about it. And I'm sure I know in my own heart parts what I need to do next time to improve. I think that's great. I mean, you definitely sound like you have such a very strong view of your your self-worth and what you've said you you know you back later on and is that something that you've developed over time or have you just kind of always been like that and maybe part of your performing growing up helped with that but is it something that you're you've consciously built or is it just how you are that's a really interesting question I think it is a combination of how I am and, and my upbringing especially in, in classical music um, and I think you know as a musician you have to be you have to be very confident you have to project confidence and now doing what I do I feel like you know you have to project confidence but you also you, I get over myself in a way because I think well um, I think it's incredibly important for for younger women to be out there speaking about these issues mm. um, and I think that that you know um, can inspire so much confidence in in other young women um, and mm. I always whenever I go to an event or, or or participate in anything that's got a public dimension to it you know um, whether it's a conference or you know a, a lunch somewhere I always ask a question and I always take part and I'm always vocal and I challenge myself to do that because I want to convey that I'm not just going to sit in the corner and be passive and observe what's going on. Um, that that you know I've I've got something to say and that I've got presence um, and and that you know conveying that to other people I think is is really important. And I just think it's such a shame that we have this real fear of public speaking. Um, I, I, I mean. I, it's hard for me because I've never found it difficult in the way that other people do but I wonder whether or not it's partly because people tell themselves that they can't do it and then over time that just becomes really enmeshed in their personality and how they see themselves and therefore lots of needless anxiety is added to the way they perceive themselves um but I just think we all have to be comfortable being public we're all influencers now in one way or another Um, I know that sounds silly, but we're all online. We're all, you know, active in our workplaces. We're all, you know, we're all ambassadors or advocates for one thing or another. Maybe some of us just much more publicly than others. But yeah, I think we all just have to get comfortable with with having that public persona and, 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 and being confident in it. Yeah, I think that is interesting in terms of, I wonder if it's a cultural thing in the UK around, 
you know, be, I don't know if it's a sort of Victorian thing, like to be seen, but not heard sort of as a child. And then you grow up with that. But I mean, that was a long time ago. So I'm not sure. No, no, it's, really I, no, I think that's, that's maybe a really good point. Um, and actually another thing that I think has really stood me in good stead is growing up, you know, I call, I talked all the time with my parents. Actually, I didn't talk until I was five years old. Okay. Um, and my parents thought, you know, that I might be, you know, that I might be deaf or that, you know, I may have some learning difficulty. And they, they were quite concerned about that for a while. And then um, when I was in nursery one day, uh, the teacher asked if I would stop painting and come over for story time. And I just turned around and said, no, thank you. Uh, and she called my parents um, to say, well, you know, Iona was very naughty today. She wouldn't come over and, and do story time. She said no. Uh, and my parents were just over the moon because <laughs> I'd started talking. Um, and I think from that point onwards, they 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 um, created an atmosphere at home where we could talk about anything and everything. And no subject was off limits, pretty much, you know. Um, and that m allowed me to be much more comfortable talking publicly about difficult issues like money. Um, and, and so, yeah, if, if people do grow up with that, that feeling that, you know, you should only speak at certain times and you should hold your tongue, then I don't think, generally speaking, that will stand them in good stead, especially if you're a woman, because I've come across so many men who are so confident in themselves, who can, you know, talk the hind legs off a donkey. They're the ones who get the promotions. They're the ones who get the opportunities, you know sometimes beyond their ability and then you see women who are very talented and able um, and because they're just not as good at putting themselves forward in that way they get overlooked mm. yeah I mean I hope hopefully that's sort of starting to change but I yeah guess take I think I think it is changing because I think we're becoming we're becoming aware of it and that's the first step isn't it once you mm. once you know it's a it's a risk then you're alive to it absolutely and so as part of your voice one area which I'm really interested in um is being an author so I'm mm. not very well connected to journalism to writing I'm very much towards the maths end in my work so as an insight strategist I will plow into loads of data try and find the story and then communicate that to people who maybe don't understand data or not are not really kind of happy with numbers so right. I am I, I know nothing about becoming an author so how did you go from your blog to writing articles to then writing two books? Well, a lot of it has been serendipity. Um, and when I first started the blog, I didn't necessarily have uh, the goal of writing a book in mind. Mm -hmm. I was approached in 2016 by a publishing house called Hardy Grant that mainly concentrates on lifestyle books. Uh, and they, they must have felt that, you know, um, that my tone of voice and my approach would be uh, very compatible with, with an accessible book about money for younger people. Mm. So that was my first book, Spare Change, which I'm very proud of because it's a beautiful book apart from anything. Um, and in a way, this is gonna sound quite arrogant, but I think it was a bit too ahead of its time in that when it came out, I think people didn't necessarily, um, you know, I think even, even at that time, people didn't think that you could have that kind of book about money um, mm. and, and they weren't entirely um, on board with that. Now, of course, we've got all these very, you know, attractive, well-written, accessible books about money for young people. And it's just taken as read that, of course, you can deal with money in, in that um, fun and entertaining way. But at that time, it was it was seen as a bit um, out there, I think. Um, so it maybe didn't pick up as much traction as it could have done. But I always think it's better to be a bit ahead of the curve uh, than to be, uh, you know, copying what other people do. I've never wanted to do that. Um, and writing the book was a fantastic experience. And it kind of made me understand that that's a, that is a real strength of mine. What I love about books is that you can explore issues in, in depth and, and in a way that you just can't do online or on TV and radio. And I am very often frustrated by, you know, the, the surface level discussion that takes place through those channels, as great as it is for kind of getting people into the whole mm. conversation in the first place. If you wanna really take your knowledge and your understanding to the next level, you can't beat a book. And I love reading books. Um, and I think the death of the book has been greatly exaggerated. I think that's where people still go to get that trustworthy, um information and, and advice and understanding um, and so yeah that's when I wanted to do my second book all about investing 
Um, I was, uh, again, I was lucky to come across uh, a finance publisher called Harriman House uh, and publish my book through them. Um, so yeah, I guess, how did I get to this point? Well, just by thinking that this kind of book would be, we need this kind of book in the world, that there isn't a book like it out there. And this book can really add something to the conversation. Uh, and, you know, it's not going to come to you fully formed in the first couple of weeks. It's taken me years, actually, to go from um, gestation to publication. It takes such a long time and it can be quite a tortuous process. And you do not do it for the money. You do it because you really believe in the idea and you think it needs to be out there in the world. Mm -hmm. And you think you're the person to write it and that you've got the right approach. Um, and if you're not going to take your time over it and, and really think carefully about it, uh, then then don't bother, you know. And I mean, I, this might sound harsh, but I think we've all we've all read books where you go, wow, OK, this person's this has been a labor of love. This person's really thought about this over many, many years. Mm -hmm. and they've taken real care to express these ideas in just the right way. I really appreciate that thought and effort they've put into it. And then you read some books where you go, OK, well, this was clearly, you know, tossed off in a couple of months. You know, it feels a little bit phoned in. You can just tell. And, and I think if you are going to take that second approach, in, in my opinion, don't bother, because how many books get published a year? Thousands and thousands and thousands. And I think you, you only write a book if you feel like the idea is, mm -hmm. is there in you and that it will add something to the world. Well, I mean, I read Own It and one of the things that you say it took years when you read it it's very easy to read it's very much uh flows all the way through so I always find that amazing in books where you know you maybe have dipped in and out it's not like you sat down and you started and then you wrote it and it was done you're kind of going <laughs> in and out dipping all the way back and forwards and uh, it yeah. does not feel like that at all in this book so well, I that's think great because <laughs> I mean I uh yeah I, I must have chopped and changed the structure mm. about you know 20 times uh, and then obviously when Covid came along I had to completely park yeah. it for a period yeah. not knowing how that was all going to pan out uh, and fortunately you know actually it made the book more relevant and timely than ever um mm. there was a period where I thought oh no no young person will ever have any money to invest ever again in the future so this book is just you know awful timing but actually it didn't it, it didn't work out like that but it did mean that a lot of what happened during Covid had to be factored into the book which is why I did my investing diary through Covid at the yeah. end because I just thought it'd be really helpful to demonstrate <laughs> how I was tackling these problems in my own portfolio as as we had gone through that crash and then those really crazy events in the stock market in 2020 you know I, I just thought that would be quite helpful and interesting for people definitely and when I was reading through I actually really liked that you factored in COVID because it did have this sort of okay here's the blast now let's pick up the pieces and yes. just having that as sort of almost the baseline of time I found really helpful I think, yeah. honestly, yeah, there's so many things I could talk to you about as part of it. Um, I think one thing that I guess really struck me was about the pension gender gap, which is something yeah. I've never, ever thought about before. I mean, I'm and I'm, I'm quite clued in with pensions. I find that they're really important. I put as much in as I can. And I know that not everyone is like that. Lots of people, until they had to, didn't have a pension. And yeah. to think about a gender gap in your pension, I found quite scary. And also the fact mm. that a woman ends up with a fifth of what a man might, I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah, it is, it's really scary. And I think it shows that there are some deep structural problems within the pensions industry. And um, it's, too, it's tied too much to existing inequalities within the workforce. Um, mm. So if you, it, basically women and men do okay and are pretty much level pegging up until the point that women have children and then that's when things change uh, and it's it's when their job prospects change but it's also when their pension prospects change mm. um, and if you have a partner who you stay with who will support you who will recognize perhaps you've given up things in order to support their career and will make sure that you're taken care of mm. and fine it's not necessarily a problem but if you end up divorcing Mm. Or, you know, perhaps if you end up on your own or you end up widowed, uh, that's when you can end up in, in real problems. So, um, yeah, we, we need much more awareness about that. And the solution can't just be to say to women, save more money. Clearly mm. something's going wrong and it needs to be addressed at a structural level. Yeah, I never knew that actually with pensions that 
you know, if you become a widow, my assumption was that you just automatically get that pension, but it seems like that's not the case. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah I, I, I just think that, that, you know, there are so many things that can go wrong. And I think the, the women against the state pension increase, WASPy women, um, mm. show that actually, um, and, and, and even recently, the Department for Work and Pensions has uh, had to, you know, pay back women uh, mm. state pension that, that was underpaid over many years. So I think, yeah, that it, it shows that things can go wrong. And very often it's the women who pay the price. Yeah. Oh, it's devastating, I think. But on a more positive note, I think the way you break down really complex things. So, I mean, the more relevant piece to me at the moment, I guess, is like help to buy. I yes. don't know that there were two different schemes called help to buy. <laughs> Why are they both called help to buy? It's all that sort of thing that um, yeah, I think you just yeah. break down so well. So thank you for doing that as well. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, I did the hard work, so you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, I absolutely recommend anyone listening to go and buy Own It or even your first book, Spare Change, and have a read because it's. I think it's just so worthwhile, no matter who you are, what age you are. It would, as you say, like grandparents sometimes just want to pass on information in a really nice way for, from a young perspective. This could be something that they do as well. So yeah, good, good Christmas present. Very good <laughs> Christmas present. So as we're just coming to the end of the episode, I have four questions which I ask everybody. So sure. the first one is what has been the best thing as part of your career to date? Um, so it's a toss up between um, winning Freelancer of the Year in 2018, mm-hmm. uh, which is a moment that I'm incredibly proud of. Um, and it gave me such a fantastic uh, launch pad for the rest of my career mm-hmm. uh, and receiving so much um, kind feedback from young people about my blog. In particular, I remember getting messages um, at the beginning of the pandemic from young people who were, who were both doing OK and just appreciated having advice about what to do with their spare cash and those who were struggling a lot more and feeling as if the blog was giving them a voice and and be and offering them solidarity so getting that feedback makes everything worthwhile that's lovely gosh very good and congratulations on your awards as well I mean I know you've had many over the years (laughs) really like like one of the best British blogs around personal finance which is incredible and then I guess conversely, and maybe we've already touched on it, but what's been the hardest thing as part of your career? Um, yeah, I mean, that as well as the ups, there have been downs as well. Um, not feeling as if you, you're understood um, and feeling like you are a bit too ahead of the curve um, and trying to get people in positions of power to understand that, that this is the coming issue. Mm. Um, that's That's been quite frustrating and difficult uh but you get over that I think I think it it hurts a lot more if you go into jobs or situations with people who don't give you the respect that you deserve Mm. uh, and you try to make it work um and you just can't um and then you know you have to just you know um cut your losses um and that's always annoying and frustrating and painful when that happens but to be honest every time I've made a decision to do that I've never regretted it. If anything, I've thought, well, I should have done that sooner. Um, I think we very often stick with things that aren't working because of the fear of sunk costs. And we get into the belief that actually, if we just stick at it, things will get better. Um, But the problem is, if you're working with other people who are not, as I would say, treating you on the level, if they're not being kind of open and respectful um, towards you, I don't think that changes. I don't think you can you can do anything yourself to win that person's respect. They may have a problem with you because you know they're old fashioned. They may be an older bloke who thinks, "What's this younger woman doing in my space?" You know, is she a threat to me? And then they lash out and they do things that you think are totally irrational and weird. But when you understand maybe the psychology behind it, you realize, "Ah, oh, okay, fine." In which case. I don't think there's anything I can do here to get you to change your mind about me and I've got to move on. Um, But conversely, when those things happen, it makes you appreciate the incredible people who you do come into contact with, who give you opportunities, who understand you and respect you. You you appreciate them all the more. Mm, I like that you made that into a positive as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, that's it. You've got to. Yeah, you can't. You I've learned by now that, you know, I mean, having done what I'm doing for 10 years, 
if you carry around all that negativity and that baggage then you mm. just yeah you it, it just weighs you down it doesn't help you in any way it, it, it won't move you forward so there just comes a point where you go right that's it boom in the past I'm very very good at going what's in the past is in the past boom right let's move on mm. I think that's a great way to think about it and one of the things which uh, there's a quote that sticks in my mind which I don't know if it's a bit too intense but um it's about forgiveness won't change the past but it'll change the future and it's your actions yes. that kind of carry on moving and changing after that and I, I I mean I love that quote I think it's great and it's just that is lovely yeah yeah I can I completely agree with that and you can also be open to the fact that people may change at some point in the future or that you know people have got their own battles that they're fighting at at some point you know and that might influence the way that they treat you as well so you also learn to become quite understanding and, and forgiving of that too um yeah and again it makes you realize that it's a tiny minority of people who ever kind of act with real what how you might say malice you know most people if if they don't kind of get that relationship with you quite right often it's just because they're not in a good place in their lives and you can be very understanding and compassionate about that even if you're not then going to put yourself in a situation where you're dealing with that on an ongoing basis yeah and it's so important and then thinking about the future what would you like or what do you know that the future holds for you and that could be any time frame you like whether it's next week or six ten years from now Oof, um I mean you know I don't give the future tons of thought um because you know I I, I tend to be quite focused on just making sure I'm, I'm making the most of the opportunities that are in front of me now mm. um but yeah I'd love to do more tv and radio in particular tv um, and maybe another book at some point. I definitely don't want to do another book for the time being. Writing on it was, as I said, it was a labor of love and I'm so, so proud of it, but it was quite exhausting. So I definitely want <laughs> quite a big break from, from writing books for the time being. But at some point in the future, yeah, another idea comes to me that I think is really needs to be written, then I, I will do it. Um, yeah, and, and other than that, I guess, I know this is going to sound quite... Uh, Maybe it'll sound a bit wishy-washy, but I think for me, my big focus now is, you know, not not being a goalaholic, actually, and not kind of having ambition for the sake of ambition. I think that's such a big trap that we we can fall into um, if we're if we if we're in a fulfilling and, and, and stimulating career. We, we then end up, you know, putting a lot of pressure on ourselves. And actually, I don't want to do that. I just want to have good balance in my life and I want to earn enough um, so that I'm comfortable and that I've got enough for the things that I really need and want um, and that I'm doing work that I enjoy I'm doing less of the work that I don't enjoy and more of the work that I do and and just generally yeah making it all add up um, I think that's that's the right way to think about the future rather than thinking I must hit this target and this target and this target because uh, I don't necessarily think that's always a recipe for happiness. Mm. I think that's something that I would love to work on is just living in the moment and as you say taking every opportunity as it comes and the right opportunities that you really want to do as well yeah yeah you got yeah absolutely and we've only got so much capacity and so much time and I've realized actually you know sometimes less is more um and it's better to just do a few things really really well rather than you know um end up being a, a jack of all trades do you know what I mean yeah absolutely I think I mean, you seem to especially have done that in carving out your niche and people want to hear from you. And that's exactly what you've done, which is great. So maybe as the last question, if someone wanted to do something similar, so whether that is changing career, getting into financial journalism, becoming an author, we've had loads of bits of advice as part of this podcast, but what would be the number one piece of advice you would give? If Can I cheat and have two pieces of advice? <laughs> Um, the first one, I mean, I've already alluded to it, but don't flog a dead horse. Um, if, if you're in a situation where you're not happy, where you don't feel like you're being listened to and respected and you feel like you're treading water, get out. Um, and even if you're not quite sure what you'll do next, you'll figure it out. Um, and sometimes you have to just make that tough decision. Um, and then you know, trust that you will come up with the next steps in due course, but you don't have to have everything mapped out. You don't have to go, right, I'll, I'll leave this job knowing full well that a, a much better job is just waiting for me around the corner. Sometimes you have to go, you know what, maybe, maybe it, I, I can't guarantee that right now, but you know, I'm going to do what's right for me 
in this moment and then figure out next steps as they come. So I guess that's the first piece of advice. And secondly, back yourself. Um, I wish that I had been much more willing to back myself sooner in my career. Mm. Um, but you can't put an old head on young shoulders. And I think if you're young and you're in your 20s, um, you know, you do have a lot of self-doubt and a lot of insecurities um, and it, it can feel like a full-time job just conquering that self-doubt and those insecurities um, mm. but but nonetheless I think the way that you do that is is by having your niche the thing that you do you know gives you that little edge over everyone else and you being just prepared to to do that and it might not be you know a case of you giving up your job in order to do it but it could be just that you carve out that time where you do you uh, and then if that if you can find that then nothing but good things will follow on from that mm. but I think if you if you go right okay here's the existing framework out there I've got to find a way to fit into that and I've got to find a way to make everybody else happy and be an you know uh, help oil the wheels and be a cog in the machine I just I don't think that's a recipe for happiness and I don't think it's a recipe for success you you absolutely have to find what it is that makes you different and unique and interesting and, and go for it. Mm. I think those are really two good pieces of advice in terms of, you know, if it's not working, don't keep on trying to make it work if it's not going to happen. And then also just to be able to have that yeah, self-confidence to say, actually, I do have a voice and people should be listening to me, even if it's even if they don't agree with it, it's my opinion from where I am now. And that's important for them to hear sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And and just because you're young doesn't mean that your voice isn't valuable. Mm. Um, and now we are starting to see younger people being taken more seriously and we are listening to what they have to say. Um, and your, your perspective matters. Don't ever think it doesn't. That's such a brilliant note to end on. So thank you so much for being on Help. I'm in my 20s, Iona. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And I think there's so many useful bits of information, bits of advice that people can get from listening to this. And of course, I absolutely recommend for them to read your blog, the Young Money blog, and read your books as well. Oh, thank you, Georgie. This has been such an interesting discussion and you've asked some really fantastic questions. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Iona Bain for being part of Help I'm In My 20s. I was absolutely thrilled when you said you'd be part of it and I really loved our conversation and I hope that anyone listening did too. You can of course buy her book anywhere that you would like to, whether that's a big bookstore or an independent one. It's called Own It, A Guide to Investing and I've also put a link in the show notes to make it easy for you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Help I'm In My 20s. Please do subscribe, rate, like, follow me on Instagram and really share with your network. It'd be so appreciated. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time. Mm -hmm.